in our reading of God's Word here tonight. Well, I thought as we move from one year into the next that it would be appropriate, uh, that it would be comforting and assuring to our hearts uh, to focus on the kingship, uh, the lordship, the sovereignty of our God tonight. For many of us, this past year was a year filled with challenges, a year filled with difficulties. We've had a number of illnesses in the congregation, some deaths as well. Some of us have struggled this year with uh, uh, employment. Others of us have been filled with anxiety about the future. And in such times, times of difficulty, times of trial, sometimes we find it difficult to see God's sovereignty in our lives. We find it difficult to to feel or, or have the experience that God is near to us, that He's actually in control, that He's directing our experience in our lives. We might be tempted to waver in our faith and in our trust. Our our rejoicing, our joy in the Lord might waver during times of trial and difficulty. And this psalm was written to encourage God's people to rejoice once again that God is in fact king, that He is in control, that He is working all things together for the good of His people. And so we're going to focus tonight on this psalm and see that it is our sovereign Lord who who stabilizes this world in which we live. He is our God who, who goes into battle to protect His church and to preserve His people. He is the God who provides His mighty help for His people in time of need, who gives us His trustworthy guidance to direct us not only in this new year but through all of life. The first thing we notice in the first couple of verses of this psalm is that God's kingly reign has been established. His throne, His rule is absolute. And in these first couple of verses here, there are a number of characteristics of God's sovereignty or His kingship that are listed and described here for us. First thing we read here in verse 1 is that the Lord is robed in majesty. Look at verse 1. The psalmist writes, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. We read that throughout the Scriptures on occasion. God is robed in glory or majesty. And boys and girls, when you hear of God being robed, you might think of some of the, the old kings of Israel and Judah who wore uh, kingly robes to to show everyone, to impress everyone uh, with their glory and their authority, their high position as the kings over Israel and Judah. But God's glory, His majesty that's described here is of a totally different kind than the glory of the kings of Israel and Judah. Our God is robed, figuratively of course, he's covered, he's surrounded by not just any glory, but a divine majesty, a divine glory. He is in fact the great king over all kings. He is God over all gods. He doesn't have any need to impress anyone because he is the only truly sovereign and holy ruler over all things. 
See, God's majesty is unique. It's of a very special sort because it connects His sovereignty with His holiness. And that's why Isaiah, when he came before God, he fell down on his face and he cried out, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he came before the majestic holiness of God. The psalmist says, secondly, that that God has put on strength as His belt. An older translation says that God has has girded Himself with strength. And that reminds us that God as King does something else for His people. He is strong in His military might. You know, boys and girls, that kings like Saul and David and Solomon, they didn't just wear kingly robes. Sometimes they went into battle uh, for the people of Israel and Judah. And they would wear armor. And they would ready themselves with weapons of war. And this picture of God girding Himself reminds us of what men used to do back in these days. When men got ready to run, when they got ready to exercise or engage in battle, they would, they would take the, the garment and they would, they would pull it up and tuck it into their belt. And they'd ready themselves for war, for battle. But we know, of course, that those earthly kings, their, their power often waned. Sometimes they only looked powerful with their armor on, but they were, in fact, weak. But our God, the psalmist says, doesn't just have the appearance of might or power. He has actual, one-of-a-kind, divine power by which He rules and sustains the whole world. And He is prepared to enter into battle for the sake of His people. There is no enemy that can defeat those who have the Lord God as their King. And that's why We read earlier in Psalm 146, we must not put our trust in princes, in mere men, in whom there is no salvation. We must seek the Lord continually. We must seek His strength and His presence every day of our lives. Well, in the third place, verse 2, the psalmist says that your throne, O God, is established from of old. God's world is established. He says this rather at the end of verse 1, excuse me. The world, he says, is established. It shall never be moved. My wife and I sometimes love to drive up the coast, and we like to stop in Santa Barbara and uh, walk to the beach, and we stand there on the sand, and we we watch the, the waters roll into the shore. And yet I'm always struck by the fact that they don't transgress the boundaries that God has set for the waves. I love what Psalm 104 says, He has set the earth on its foundations so that the waters do not transgress the boundaries that He has set for them. This world in which we live demonstrates stability. There's order, there's structure, there's a normal activity that goes on in this world. And the reason? It's because our God rules it. He governs it in every part, every molecule. There is no rogue molecule in all of this world that God has made. The stability of this world is based upon the fact that God in His own character does not change. We can take marvelous comfort in the fact that 
our majestic, holy, and powerful God will always rule and govern this world according to His righteous character, which never changes. It's stable. And that leads to the fourth and final characteristic of God's kingly reign. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. The psalmist says, you, O God, are from everlasting. That means that our God and His sovereign rule over all things are eternal. God is, He has always been, He always will be the sovereign Lord of the universe. His control of this world and of your life, it doesn't come and go depending on the seasons. There are no term limits on God's sovereignty. And that's why Moses In Psalm 90 declared, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that means so much to us as His people. That God and His his throne are eternal means that God is eternally trustworthy. He can be trusted to continue being who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word. His character will never change. He will never go back on His promises to us. And so we must never ignore Him. We must never run against His will. We can only worship Him, serve Him, delight in Him as we know Him in the splendor of His holiness and might, and we can cast our cares upon Him because He delights to meet our needs, and He is powerful enough to meet every one of them. The second thing we notice is that there's a change in tone in this psalm in verses 3 and 4. While the first two verses declare that this world is stable because of the sovereignty of God, verse 3 seems to bring that stability of God's control into question. The psalmist says, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. The floods, literally it says, they lift up their pounding waves. The rushing of mighty waters crescendo in their opposition to the sovereignty of God. We read this verse and we wonder, is the world really that stable? Is God really that uh, in control? And in our own lives, we look around us at the world and so often it seems to be the case. The world is a frightening place. It's a very unruly place. Just in this past year, we have seen wars and political hostilities continue to rage on seemingly one after another in nearly every part of the world. We've witnessed famines and disease, a worldwide pandemic that is now entering its third year. We read of earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and other disasters. We become increasingly troubled at the corruption uh, in our government and others. It seems that the wicked prosper and that the righteous uh, face difficulty. And here in verse 3, even the psalmist seems to reflect some sort of despair that perhaps the world isn't a stable place. Perhaps God is 
not in control of all things. There's a desperation in the psalmist's voice. Lord, the floods are lifting up. Your enemies, they're so loud, they're so powerful. I'm reminded from the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, that, that we as God's people ought to be sober-minded. We ought to be watchful in this world in which we live. Because God's great enemy, the, the prowling lion, the devil himself, is seeking constantly who he may devour. We live as believers in the midst of an ongoing battle between our God's sovereign kingship and the spiritual forces of wickedness in our world that would seek to undo His power, that would seek to steal away His people. And that battle, that spiritual conflict, it, it touches every aspect of our lives as believers. Is God really in control? Verse 4 responds with this glorious, confident announcement mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The voice of many waters, the waves of the sea, voices of opposition to God and His church, they may thunder, but the Lord on high is even more mighty. He is supremely powerful. Nothing ultimately can threaten the eternal security of God's people. And it's helpful for us for a moment to just think about how a psalm like this would have come to the aid of God's people Israel and Judah as they were languishing as exiles in the land of their captors. You remember, boys and girls, of course, that the people of Israel and Judah were disobedient to God on many occasions. And ultimately, in the end, as God promised would happen, they went into exile. They were captured by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And that was a terrible time for God's people. People, God's people were strangers in the foreign land of their enemy captors. They dearly missed their homeland, a land that God had promised on oath to them and their forefathers. God's house, His holy temple had been destroyed and laid waste. There was no king in the line of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. It seemed that all was lost. It seemed that God wasn't in control anymore. Thundering forces bent on overturning God's promise, overturning His kingly reign. They seem to have won. And yet, the people of Israel and Judah in exile could read this psalm. They could sing this psalm as it instructed them how to live truly meaningful and fulfilled lives even when there was no king on the throne and the temple was a pile of rubble. This psalm, Psalm 93 and others like it, responded to Israel's crisis of faith while they were in exile. Even while suffering, they could sing this psalm and others like it to remind themselves, to hold on to the promise that God's promises, God's Word was not null and void. The Lord still reigns. His promises are still true. 
So Psalm 93 offered a much-needed response to the crisis raised in Psalm 89, a psalm that comes at the end of the third book of the Psalter. At the end of that psalm, a very sad psalm, the question comes, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it our circumstances seem to deny that you are a faithful God? and that you are powerful and good. Psalm 93 responds and says, His faithfulness is right here where it's always been. The Lord reigns. He's in control. He is working all things together for the good of His people. This psalm called God's people to live in faith and in hope in the Lord's reign, even amidst circumstances that seem to contradict it. This psalm must have reminded them of Psalm 90 a psalm I read a bit from earlier, a psalm credited to Moses. Psalm 90 would have called Israel to a time gone by, a time in her history when there was no king on the throne. It was a time when there was no throne. The kings hadn't been established yet. God hadn't made His covenant with David at that time, and yet Israel had a king. Israel had a ruler. God Himself was Israel's royal refuge before David's throne ever came into existence. That's why Moses writes in Psalm 90, right in the first verse, Lord, You are our dwelling place. We don't need the temple or Jerusalem. God is the dwelling place of His people. And what a blessed assurance that must have given Israel, God's exiled people, in their time of crisis. What an assurance it gives us. For in many ways, we are still the exilic people of God. Peter writes to the church in his first letter, and he says, you are elect exiles. You're special. You're the special covenant possession of God. But right now, for a time, you're strangers on the earth. You live in a hostile world. The, thun- the, the, the waters roar and thunder on a constant basis against the church of Christ. But God is still king. And He is working all things together for the good of His people, for the good of His church, even when the waters thunder, even when the nations rage. And so we're called to put our hope and our trust in Him. Well, as we come to the last verse, verse 5, the scene in this psalm changes somewhat. In the first four verses, uh, it's the, uh, the universal sovereignty of God that's in view. And now, the psalmist talks about the law of God, His trustworthy decrees. He talks about the holiness of God's house. Look at me at verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This might seem like a strange transition, but if we remember Psalm 19, it's not. Remember Psalm 19, the first half of it talks about the the greatness of God, the glory of God in all of creation. And the second half of that psalm is all about God's laws, His, His trustworthy statutes for His people. The psalmist is pointing out to us that it's not just the sovereignty or the kingship of God that's established. It's also God's Word, 
His law are firmly established according to His kingly reign. His holy standards also remain firm and steadfast. They do not change. And that means that for us, as those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit, it's our joyful task, our joyful calling to seek that unchanging, firm and established Word of God and live holy lives in accordance with His sovereign kingship. Peter, again in his letter in chapter 2, says, we are, as believers, we're like living stones being built up as a spiritual temple, a spiritual house. And it's fitting, it's appropriate that the holiness that, that characterized God's dwelling with His people in the past, in the tabernacle and in the temple, that that holiness should characterize our lives as well as we are the willing, obedient subjects of His kingly reign. Just as holiness was the, was the outstanding characteristic of God's house in the Old Testament, that holiness is to be the virtue that characterizes us. For Peter says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, a people for His own possession, so that we may proclaim to the world the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. But how is that holiness worked in us? How do we make progress in our obedience, in our conformity to His unchanging Word, His unchanging statutes? How do we especially see God's power to rule us and to make us holy as His people? Well, God rules His church. God demonstrates His control, His sovereignty in and through Jesus Christ who came in the fullness of time as our Savior and our King. It's Jesus who is the sovereign ruler of the universe. It's Jesus who is the guide of His people. It's important that when we read in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom of God, about the reign of the Lord, we can't separate what the Bible says about the kingdom of God from its expectation of the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. What the Bible says about the reign of the Lord is inseparably bound up. It's connected to the prophecies about one who would come who would be both the Savior and the King, who would come and be a Messiah King, who would establish the kingdom of peace for His people in all nations. That's why in Isaiah 11 we read about the coming Messiah who's promised who would come and rule the world. We read that, that He's the root of Jesse, the, the, the king among the kings of Israel. All nations would come to Him. And so we read a psalm like Psalm 93, which only talks about the reign of the Lord. We must see that as being connected with the promise of the Redeemer King of David's line, and the, Old, the New Testament makes clear that that is Jesus Christ. He is the one who fulfills those offices of Messiah and King, for He is the Son of David. 
That's why Matthew, the gospel writer, announces at the beginning of his book, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, a king of David's line. That's why Philippians 2 and Ephesians 1 talk about Jesus as the divine king who rules the universe on behalf of his people. That's why 1 Timothy 6 and Revelation 19 say that Jesus bears a twofold title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, a title that can only be given to God Himself. We look at the New Testament and Jesus' work that's described there. What does Jesus come to do? He comes to vanquish and to destroy chaotic foes, the rushing rivers that try to undo the reign of God. The role of vanquishing chaotic foes belongs to Jesus. He's the one who enters into battle on behalf of the church to defeat her enemies. What did Jesus do when He came to earth? To the stormy seas, He said, peace, be still. Literally, there in Mark, He says, be silent, be muzzled, be quiet. That same word is used in Mark and in Luke when describing Jesus driving out of the demons. Be silent. The testimonies of Jesus Christ, His Word, are mighty. They're more powerful than those of any surging sea or any rebellious demon, and His arrival in the fullness of time to establish order and peace That fulfilled the longing of God's people from of old. And He would conquer chaos. He would bring abundant life and peace through His own suffering and death on the cross. There on that cross, Jesus was not defeated by wickedness. He was not defeated by God's foes. There He defeated all of the forces that oppose the ordered and abundant life that God intends, there on the cross, He was still king. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the glorious message that after He rose from the dead, after He conquered sin, Satan, and death, Jesus now reigns, and He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet, even that final foe of death itself. Even though forces of chaos may still threaten, though they may speak loudly against the church, Revelation 17 promises us the Lamb will conquer them. It's a sure promise because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And by His resurrection, Christ has secured life and victory for each and every one of us, assuring us that nothing can defeat His church. No debilitating illness, no discouragement, no trial or loss can defeat Christ's children who are already super conquerors through Him. And Christ is not absent from us even now as we live in exile. He remains with us by His outpoured Spirit who is strengthening us day by day to do battle with the enemy, 
with the armor, the spiritual armor that He provides. Jesus, the Messiah King, the ruler of the universe, continues to give us strength and encouragement and direction so that no matter what we are facing in this life, brothers and sisters, our victory is secure in Jesus. And one day He will return. His kingship will be evident to all. Everyone will bow before Him. And we as His special possession will live in the glory of the victory that He has accomplished for us. In this new year, set your gaze upon Jesus Christ, your Savior, your King. Rejoice, for He rules this world. He reigns. He is the King of your life and this world, and He's working all things together for your salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in faith we do anticipate the day when Christ returns, when His kingly reign will be evident for all to see and all to acknowledge. We look forward to that day that will witness a choir of God's people in the setting of a new creation. Together we will exclaim with perfect joy, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Lord, even though we look forward to the day when that reign will be acknowledged by all, we pray that now, right now, You would help us to live in light of the reality of the Lord's kingship. We thank You, O Lord, that You rule us perfectly by Your Word and by Your Spirit through the care and the intercession of Jesus. We pray that in this new year we would cast our cares upon You, that we would not put our hope or our trust in mere men, in princes or political leaders, that we would put our trust squarely in Jesus Christ to meet all of our needs, physical and spiritual. That even in the midst of this exile in which we live, where we may be marginalized and mistreated, even hated for the sake of Christ, that we would cast our cares upon You, put our trust fully in You, O Lord, that in the right day, in the right way, You will exalt Your people And we will live forever in the victory that you have attained for us. Comfort our hearts with the knowledge of your sovereignty in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.